0: felt it was really important to communicate with my guests and my customers. And, you know, we have a pretty good loyal group of followers that I know are, are on Instagram and just be honest and say, this is what's going on. This is how it's impacting us. And we have to pass a small portion of that impact onto you. And we're still taking it on the head a little bit, but we want, you know, we want to make sure our customers are aware of what's happening out there. Welcome to The Profitable Table,
1: fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Wolco Foods CEO, Steven Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. I am your host, Steven Toberoff, and today I have My first repeat guest uh, on the podcast, and it is Andrew Martino, who is the founder and owner of Ghost Truck Kitchen in Jersey City. And if you want to learn more about that particular restaurant and, and the innovations and everything, we're going to get into it a little bit. But I highly encourage you to listen to that episode. I think we're up to episode 55 now, and this was way back, maybe episode six or seven. But it's a great interview, and you'll learn a lot about Ghost Truck Kitchen, the concept behind it, and and a lot of important things. The reason I invited Andrew on today to talk with me is because I consider him to be really a thought leader in the industry and one of the smartest people that I speak with in the industry, and there's so much going on right now that I felt it would be very beneficial for, for everybody to really get his insights into a number of the dynamics that are going on right now. So, Andrew, thanks a lot for taking the time to speak with me again.
0: Oh, it's nice to be back. Happy to uh, happy to chat.
1: So what prompted me to reach out to you is there's a number of, of different dynamics that are going on right now in the hospitality space, which are really unlike anything I've seen in my, I don't know, 21, 22 years of doing this, from the accelerated ramp up to the labor issues, to the inflation. And I saw you do an IG story, which I thought was terrific for a lot of different reasons, where you essentially communicated to your, your, your customers, your audience, that you were experiencing a substantial increase in your poultry pricing. And it led me to thinking and it led me to call you. So I guess I just want to jump right into it and sort of get a big picture view on your part as to what are you seeing be some of the more challenging and macro dynamics that are hitting the hospitality industry right now as we come out of 2020? Of
0: yeah, it's overall been obviously a very challenging 16 months for for most restaurateurs, and it seemed like just as things were starting to roar back to life, you know, we kind of got hit with something that I've never seen before, which is inflation on everything, everything from proteins and meats to to packaging to fryer oil to, you know, dairy. I mean, there's really no reprieve any direction. It makes it hard to operate a restaurant profitably. I felt it was really important to communicate with my guests and my customers. And, you know, we have a pretty good loyal group of followers that I know are, are on Instagram and just be honest and say, you know, this is what's going on. This is how it's impacting us. And we have to pass a small portion of that impact onto you and we're still taking it on the head a little bit, but we want you know we want to make sure our customers are aware of what's happening out there,
1: well, you know it's interesting because the same dynamic that you're experiencing we're experiencing as well. I've never seen inflation like this in for example, products such as soy oil and cooking oil, but there's many others, and I think some of this inflation is a byproduct of what I, would, what I would consider to be transitory issues, which is some, some labor issues that will resolve themselves, or because I think a lot of what's behind this, which is a very positive thing, is, and I had sort of envisioned this happening, is the hospitality industry, particularly where you and I are, Andrew, which is in the New York City, Jersey City, Hoboken area, has really come roaring back in a big way. And I think it's come back faster than a lot of people anticipated. So you had a lot of companies that cut down to the bone. And it's just not so easy to ramp up and get the staffing you need to accommodate that level of demand, which goes from zero to 100 like that, you know?
0: I think you are 100% correct. And I'll go one step further and say a lot of these restaurants perhaps gained as much as 50% capacity with outdoor dining restrictions being lifted or eliminated. um, So now you're not only need to get to 100% capacity of what you had, you might actually need 125 or 150% staff capacity from what you ever had. So there's a lot of challenges that are presenting. And I do agree with the first point. It's only this way because vaccinations got rolled out so quickly to so many people that people felt comfortable traveling, dining, you know, staying at hotels, booking airlines, everybody is is out and about all at the same time. And it's just a, a situation where the demand is really strongly outpacing the supply.
1: Now, back to the initial sort of point where I was sort of saying how we're facing the same thing and essentially trying to do what you're doing, which is, look, at some point I want to absorb, and I know you do as well, as much of the inflationary pressure as possible because we both value our customers tremendously. They've been loyal to us. They've stayed with us. But at the at the same time, there does come a point where you just have to pass it on. And I really appreciate your strategy, and I think it's going to be a winning strategy, and I'm doing the same thing. You know, when I have customers, you know, we get calls all the time, our sales team, about oil or for a while, and it still is anything with resin in it. It's just letting them know point blank. And I've even gone so far to show People, Look, this is what our distributors are charging. My question to you, Andrew, is do you feel that the feedback you're getting from your customers is, look, Andrew, we totally get it? Because I think up to this point, everybody's been super supportive of the hospitality industry, again, in the part of the country we are. But now they're seeing the inflation. Do you find that your customers are being receptive to your communication and tolerating it? You know, how, how are you finding it in terms of their reaction to what's going on with price increases or, or other attributes of this inflation?
0: Yeah, b- well, believe it or not, customers have actually been supportive. I received several messages of, you know, thank you. Wow, we had no idea. Thank you for explaining, you know, things of that. But I probably got four times the amount of messages from fellow restaurants you know, just bemoaning the same thing and thanking me for putting it out there. And now they're putting their own take out there to, to let consumers know what's going on. So yeah. I do feel like, yes, there's understanding, but people also still have mental limits on how much it should cost to, to buy a sandwich for lunch, right? How much I should spend on dinner. So, you know, if, if, if I was raising prices like I should be, I would probably have a, a $16 grilled chicken sandwich that doesn't come with a side, and, and that's not a price that I would buy a chicken sandwich with in New Jersey, you know, in, in Jersey City. So, you know, I understand that there are certain limits and I have to eat it for a little bit in the hopes that my customers will continue to be loyal and that things as we get closer to September and people go back to work and demand subsides with summer ending that, you know, prices will hopefully adjust and come back closer to where they were.
1: Yep, I agree with your strategy, and it's essentially what I've focused on. I mean, in my space, Andrew, we have some competitors. I'm not going to mention them by name. And they're facing substantial challenges, primarily with staffing but other things. And the way that they've addressed it is they're essentially making it less attractive for people to order from them. So, for example, they've cut their cut off time for when you can get delivery the next day by several hours. They're charging an additional 10% surcharge on top of a split case item. So, you know, when companies that do split cases of whatever the product is, those split items are always a little bit more money. They're putting a surcharge on top of it. And the strategy of a lot of these guys is, some of them I know from what my sales team have told me, they're not even out there soliciting. You know, Because they just can't handle the volume they have. So it's a truly crazy time. But I've made the decision, look, I want to pick up market share. I want to show gratitude to the people who stayed loyal with us. And we just have to absorb as much as we can within reason. Now, something that I'd like your opinion on, which for people who haven't listened to the original episode with Ghost Truck Kitchen, just to give a very basic explanation... Andrew's concept was to create a brick and mortar establishment that was solely focused on pickup and delivery. And this was pre-pandemic. So obviously he was truly a visionary and obviously the dynamics that occurred over the past 15 months really enabled that. But as a byproduct of that decision, Andrew, even from the inception, you avoided a lot of the labor costs that most restaurants have to endure. I'm wondering what your thoughts are in that scope. Even if it's not hitting your restaurant as well, I know you're very up on things. You'd mentioned the month of September, which is significant because it's when the enhanced unemployment ends. What are your thoughts about people who are thinking about getting into the hospitality space or looking for a job? When do you think that tipping point is when people actually get off the dime and start looking? Or how do you view that whole dynamic just in general?
0: Yeah, the labor has always been in the center of my mind. I spent four years in Southern California Between 2012 and 2016. So California minimum wage was already high and it was something that was a part, you know, of all our discussions working in full service. So, you know, part of the creation of Ghost Truck was really to, you know, lower and eliminate a lot of overhead that I didn't feel was necessary for this operation. You know, so we have been fortunate in that, you know, it only takes us about four to five people to run our operation, which is different from a full service restaurant that might take, you know, 20, 30, or 40 people. As far as when people go back, I would say the smart people are starting to look right about now. If you're uh, someone coming back into the workforce, this is a great time because you have some leverage. There are a lot of positions available. You might be able to pick and choose the employer that fits with your, your values or your schedule. I believe as we get closer and closer to that expanded unemployment ending things are going to get pretty chaotic and that and that hourglass is going to flip the exact opposite direction where there's going to be a lot more people looking for jobs than jobs available. You know, the summer is a great time. Kids are off. Uh, businesses are booming. You know, things tend to slow down a little bit once schools restart. So a place that might be looking to hire 10 people now mainly be looking to hire one person come September. So I really think, you know, if you want the the best employer, the most flexible hours, the the most compensation, you know, that that should be taking place right now, today, tomorrow, Monday, whatever the case may be.
1: I completely agree with you. And and I think that the people who really want to be in the hospitality space, and because people may not know this, but in the New York City area there are many people who make their lifelong career as waiters, in addition to of course, people that are chefs and others. And um I think it's probably the best time ever for people to be seeking out their dream job and that dream dynamic in the hospitality space. And I think the people that are serious are going to start looking at it very quickly. One of the things that I had believed would occur in the midst of the uh, past year when things were bleak was that the hospitality space would be, when when this was over, would be elevated again, perhaps even more than ever, to the position of of, I don't want to say prominence, but We really now see how integral and important restaurants, nightclubs, bars, socializing are in people's lives. And so my question sort of feeding off of that is, I think that I I just, and it's actually the timing is perfect. I just read in CNBC.com that even though retail spaces in New York City, commercial retail is going down, more and more leases are being snapped up for these restaurants that are turnkey. And I'd like to know your thoughts, Andrew, as to whether or not you see a major renaissance rebirth happening in the hospitality space. Do you see the hospitality space being viewed any differently now than it was, say, in 2019? What's your sense on, on this whole thing?
0: I think what we're going to see more of is, I think, that the break in work for a lot of people that were really the backbone of restaurants, right, whether those are our line cooks, whether those are lead servers or, or lead bartenders or whatever the case may be, I think they realize that, you know, they were working very hard and they were putting money in someone else's pocket. And maybe they want to work for themselves now or band together and start their own concept. So, what I think is, I think we're going to see a new generation born from this of restaurateurs and entrepreneurs. And that, that doesn't mean they're all going to be successful, right? The majority probably may not be. But I do think there's going to be a lot. A new, a new changing of the guard of people that that want to cook their own food, that want to create their own concepts. You know, there's many ways to do that. It's yes, there's brick and mortar available, but I've seen really talented chefs from 11 Madison Park, you know, launch brands on Instagram that have now become pop-ups that have become, you know, brick and mortar. So there's a lot of directions for people to go, and I do believe that you know there is a lot of talent, and people are going to take that talent and try to you know be their own boss and, and do something that, that they want to do opposed to maybe work for a, a large restaurant.
1: I think you're right. And one of the things that I saw on two occasions was two restaurants, the owner of the restaurant just didn't want to deal with it, and he sold it to his staff. And now these restaurants are flourishing, which is great. So I think you're right. I think there's going to be a whole new generation of people who come into the space. I also think that, you know, pre-2020, one of the biggest challenges that restaurants faced in New York City is the lease, the rent. When the lease was up, many great restaurants that did a ton of business could not afford the lease. And I think that dynamic has changed and perhaps will stay changed for enough of a time for there to be this infusion of new chefs and new concepts that are taking advantage of the opportunity to finally open a space without having to take on rent, which from the very jump is risky. I saw this happen in 2008 and 2009. I think that may be happening now. What do you think? You know, now everybody's going through these transitions in life. There's the great resignation going on. Do you think we're also going to just see a whole crop of new people that have always wanted to try their hand in this space come into this space? Yes,
0: but I'm not as confident as you that the landlords and the price is going to be dropping substantially enough that it's going to bring demand from this new generation. You know, I think privately owned buildings, maybe a different story, but a lot of these spaces are, are owned by, you know, larger companies, larger corporations. And if they have to sit vacant for six months or 12 months, that's really okay by them, and and they want the rent that they that they're gonna get outside of New York. I, I am definitely hopeful that there's a lot of new entrepreneurs out there. There's a lot of different ways to make money in food and beverage. You know, not just restaurants, but consumer packaged goods and sauces and desserts. And I do think there is a real hunger for entrepreneurship in in hospitality and and the culinary field. So. I'm I'm always checking out to see who's going to come up with something cool and, and, you know, ingenious. And I hope these people and landlords will find a way to work alongside these young entrepreneurs and, and help them get off the ground. You know, it's, it's a challenging endeavor for at least two to three years for every restaurant. You know, no one is gangbusters out the door unless you're very, very lucky. So I hope that landlords will, will help these guys get off the ground and get started.
1: Well, you said something interesting in your answer that I wanted to explore a little further, which is, It's always been the case, to a certain degree, that there have been landlords that have been willing to, and in in some cases desirous of, creating a dynamic where they and the tenant are in partnership together, whereby the tenant might pay a market rent or a below-market rent, and then there's profit sharing. This happens in hotels, but it's happened in other things. Now, during the past year, something very consequential occurred, which is that there was a freeze on paying rent in New York City, and I don't know if it was in Jersey City, you could tell me. And so those landlords that were strictly tied to their tenant by the lease had essentially no legal recourse to pursue their back rent. And I have further ideas, or not ideas, but questions on this I want to explore with you after. But nonetheless, those people that just had tenants, they have not been able to do anything. Whereas those landlords who had a sort of hybrid relationship They are still in business with the restaurant. Do you think that this experience where landlords were essentially prohibited from enforcing their right to collect rent will encourage more and more of those hybrid engagements? And if so, do you think that's a good thing?
0: Short answer, yes and yes. I myself have been part of several conversations where a sales-based or a revenue-based lease has been the way that they wanted to approach it. And that's not just in New York City. That's as, you know, down south as Red Bank, New Jersey, where, you know, I think people realize that interests need to be aligned and landlords need to align themselves with the restaurants and restaurants with the landlords. There's no better provider of real estate value than a great restaurant in your neighborhood. And I think restaurateurs are now more acutely aware of that. And I think landlords are more acutely aware of that. And it makes sense for landlords to whether they're making an investment in in the space or in the build out. I think it makes complete sense. And I definitely think we will see more of it. Again, especially a new generation of of real estate and developers. I think that, you know, maybe are in their late 30s and early 40s and see that there's a changing of the guard and they're starting to invest alongside potential F and D concepts or F and D groups. You know, I definitely see that
1: happening. I completely agree with that. I actually think this is going to be ultimately a very positive thing for those independent restaurants that really have a great concept. Because as I was saying, the number of people who have had to close up shop simply because they couldn't afford the lease renewal was very much material. And I think when the landlord and the restaurant can have their interests aligned, it really creates the foundation for people to have a lot more security in going into this business because they know it's something that can be around for decade after decade. I, I haven't explored this. I don't really plan on exploring it. I'm wondering if you know is that back rent that has not been paid still owed, or is that going to just be absolved, or is that being done on a case by case basis? Do you have any insight or knowledge on that? I don't have
0: enough that I'd feel confident to say it's going to be one way or another. I do know specific cases where. The back rent has been tacked on to the end of the lease, meaning like essentially they just extended the lease and added additional rent to all of the months on the remaining months of the lease. I also know there's cases where, you know, it is being absolved completely. I think it really depends on who your, who your landlord is and, and what the situation is for the space.
1: What I would say to those listeners who have restaurants in, in New York, I did a, an episode several months ago with Jasmine Moy, who's a prominent attorney in the space. And we'd gone over some ideas and she had somewhat different views than I did. But what I would suggest if you have a restaurant and you're in that position is now is the time to really talk with your landlord. And if they're reasonable, and I think that they have every incentive to be, work something out that works for you. Because at the end of the day, regardless of what is going on and regardless of how great things are, commercial rent is still going down in New York and we both know that e-commerce was taking a toll on retail way before 2020. So restaurants are one of the more core and established concepts that will rent commercial space. And so if you have a good concept and you're making money and you're profitable and it's sustainable, the landlord has every incentive to work something out with you. And, and you know, of course it's, it's neighborhood dependent, but, uh, something to do. And I think for those people who are thinking about just getting into the space, my personal view is, I mean, if I was getting into the space, I think, and I'd like to know your thoughts since you've had these conversations, I like the idea of the hybrid relationship more than the standard lease. And of course, it's all dependent on the terms and the percentages. Do you have a thought on that in terms of if you have a preference and, and what your thoughts are? Yeah, I think,
0: you know, it, it depends a lot, of course, on your concepts. I think it, it could potentially mitigate some of your risk and downside, especially if you're putting in a lot of capital to open up a place. You know, if you're, if you're investing, you know, one to $2 million to, to build out, furnish your space, get everything going, yeah, you want a landlord that is going to work with you, that's going to help you stay there for a long time. If you're doing something on a smaller scale that maybe you think, you know, has a chance to, to do well on its own and you're not totally out of pocket, Maybe it's a different approach, but I do think the risk factor plays a lot into it. And again, I think more people will be willing to get into the business, put their money into the business if they feel confident that they have a good working relationship with the landlord and all of their goals are are aligned.
1: Now, something I'd also like to explore with you is that, and again, this is sort of regional, but it really isn't that regional because I think it's going on in, in any number of iterations around the country. But I would argue that New York City and Jersey City are both going through major transformations of a different kind. I would characterize New York's transformation into being one where prior to the past year, New York was really ultra expensive. You had lots of people that lived there part-time. You had more and more restaurant groups and chains coming in that just didn't care what they paid. And the pricing was insane. And I believe what's happening in New York is it's becoming again—and I I was born in New York, and I lived there in the 70s and 80s, so I've seen the trajectory. It's my view that New York is becoming, once again, a grittier, somewhat more affordable city, somewhat more artistic-oriented city, and definitely something more of a party city. And that transformation, I think, is going to play out in terms of what types of of businesses open up in the hospitality space— In Jersey City, Jersey City is becoming much more established and viable in the entire city, not just the waterfront. You have the science and the tech uh, campus opening up not too far from where we are. You have all kinds of development going on. I'd like to know what your thoughts are about the future of both of those locations. If you agree with me, you disagree, what's your sense? Because I think as these two areas evolve, and as I said, you could look at the Look at any part of the country; everything's always evolving. It's going to impact what the hospitality space looks like. So I'm, I'm curious if if you agree with me, you disagree with me. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think well, when we talk about New York City, I think it's unfair to blanket it because I, I do feel that Manhattan is a very different animal from from different boroughs. I would love to agree with you on what you think about New York City, but unfortunately, I don't see the residential prices dropping much. Which will impact the people that can live there full time and you know patronize all these smaller restaurants. So I'm not as uh, bullish that grittier, more artistic, back to kind of the way they, that the city used to be in the 90s is going to come back. Just because I think the the price of living has has remained very very high. Jersey City, I feel I love that I'm here. I love that I live here. I love that my business is here. I think the city is scratching the surface on you know, what it can, is going to become for you know, the next 10 or 15 years. I think there's tons of opportunities in all different parts of the city for people to establish businesses, live, move. I'm very excited about SciTech City. There's a big project coming for the, the movie industry that's going to bring a lot of business to Jersey City. So I uh, definitely feel very strongly about the growth of New York City and the trajectory I think Manhattan is, is tough sledding. A lot of international buyers, part-time livers, very still high-end, ultra-wealthy. And what you have in the outer boroughs is probably closer to what Manhattan used to be 20 to 30 years ago, where there are a lot of opportunities. There's places to open up great restaurants that can anchor future neighborhoods, affordable places to live, affordable places to open up a business. So I feel you know that the growth of New York City and the boroughs is going to continue um, people are going to continue to to be entrepreneurs there. But I do think that it does become much more challenging in Manhattan just from a perspective and also to build up a loyal and local clientele because you know that's kind of left the neighborhoods is that the feeling of regulars and locals and people that would live in the same apartment for 10, 15, and 20 years.
1: Now, one of the things, well, I I, I get where you're coming from and, and listen. I'm looking, for example, there was an article in The Post where, in the area of the Lower East Side by Orchard and Stanton, uh, every night at three or four in the morning, people are coming out and partying. Obviously, it's being taken perhaps to an extreme in certain parts where it's getting you know, dangerous and whatnot. But I'm just seeing a level of partying and younger people and all of that than than I've seen in a while, but perhaps it's just a snapshot. Perhaps it's brief. I agree with everything you're saying about Jersey City. Do you think Jersey City is almost now in everybody's minds? Do you think it's because I I notice more and more frequently there'll be articles in Eater and Why that mention Jersey City restaurants. Do you think Jersey City has now evolved to a place where it really is viewed as an extension of New York City, the same way the other boroughs are?
0: Close. I think we're very, very close. I think the pandemic actually accelerated that, especially during the time when. Indoor dining was not allowed at all in New York City. There was a lot of New York City residents that were coming across the river to, to go out to dinner and hang out. There was an influx of people that moved from New York City to the Jersey City region. So I do think it's, it's getting to the point where it does feel more like a six borough, an extension of New York City. I think it'll continue to move in that direction.
1: One of the dynamics that I saw over the past year with a number of our restaurants is... One one great example, a guest of mine, uh, freight who has two locations. At the time, he had the one in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And what he found is that because people were home, a lot of his customers who would go there after work, because they were working from home, they were now getting delivery uh, and takeout for lunch. And he found his business was positively impacted by that. Obviously, the office worker situation is very much in flux. And I think that it was possibly in flux even before what we had the last year. But my question to you is, Andrew, let's assume that the office work situation comes back to, I'm just going to put a number out there, 30 or 40% of what it was, or even 50. Can that in and of itself create opportunities for certain restaurants that are living in more residential areas? Because it's like this, you know, like if you work all day and then you got to commute home and you've been through the grind, then you just say, you know what, I just want to order up and watch some Netflix or chill. But if you've been home all day working from home, then you want to get out when your work's done, right? And you want to go out and then it's not a grind anymore because you've been at home all day. So, how do you see that sort of reversal playing out? Because it's going to be a dynamic to one extent or another. We just don't know how extreme. But how do you think that's going to play out and impact the hospitality space?
0: It's really hard to tell. My best guess is that people are going to venture out of their home for their lunch break as, okay, I've been stuck in my apartment, you know, staring at my screen, now I want to go out. But they're not going out to go out to eat something. They're probably going out, walk somewhere. They want something convenient. They could pick up fairly quickly, order it ahead of time. So I still think the convenience and technology aspect is still going to play. Um, And there are a lot of tech companies and food tech companies that are working on solutions for the office worker, for people that are coming back to the office. So You know, anytime there's opportunity, there's always going to be smart people that are that are motivated to to solve a need. Um, So I I think that that's going to happen probably quicker in New York than anywhere else because it's such a competitive market. But I I agree with you. I think that I think I read something actually about earlier dinner times. I think that's something very interesting to think about. Right? People now might be who are eight o'clock dinner people may now be eating at six o'clock. People might want to start their happy hour at three p.m. instead of five p.m. So I think. There are certain behavioral things that have changed somewhat permanently.
1: You know, I'm hearing that from a lot of our restaurants. I was just I, I, I was just talking to someone the other day who said the same thing. That even though now there are places that are open till four AM in New York and this guy has a nice gastro pub, he's finding that the early dinner dynamic is still there. Like people got conditioned to do that.
0: Yeah. And it, and it's different, right? Just like you said, instead of maybe you finish up at the office between five and six, you get home, you're sweaty on the subway. You're, you know, okay. By the time you do what you want to do, you shower. All right. Now maybe you're having dinner at seven eight o'clock. Now you work from home, you shut your computer off probably at five o'clock on the dot, maybe five thirty, and now you're ready to go do something and get back outside. So I think that's what you're finding is why, you know, those times are kind of getting pushed back.
1: Now, one of the, Main issues in the restaurant space that you were on top of and seeking a solution for way before a lot of people was the third-party delivery apps and their fees and their negative impact on the restaurant space. I think a lot of people, and we discuss this for people who want sort of a deeper dive into that, please listen to our first interview because we go into – the various strategies where these third-party delivery apps can work and where they can be absolutely disastrous. But the question I have for you right now, Andrew, is how do you see that space at the current moment and how do you see it evolving? I ask that because obviously... New York City Council and perhaps Jersey City, you would know better than I, have put caps on what they can charge as fees. There have been a number of startups. There's been a lot of pushback against these guys. So how would you assess the state of the third-party delivery apps at this moment? And where do you see that evolving over the coming, let's call it, 24 months?
0: Yeah, great question. Glad you brought it up. I think this is a very risky time for restaurants in their partnerships with these third-party apps. I say that because, as we speak, a few of the major players have plans or have already enacted plans to launch their own brands, their own concepts, their own kitchens. And they're doing that and optimizing that by using the data that they've gleaned from us over the past 10 to 15 years. So every restaurant, I think, needs to make a plan of how they're going to protect their customers from getting poached to third parties, how they're going to keep their customer data in-house, and how, if anything, they're going to leverage third parties to help bring them customers that they can convert to their first-party customers. Over the next two years, I think you're going to see there's already been Uber consolidation. Pardon my use of the Uber word, but there will continue to be more mass consolidation in the market. These guys will continue to vertically integrate with other major players, cutting out independent restaurants, and they're going to be able to offer bargain pricing because they're not all that concerned with profit profitability, they're concerned with market share. So, you know, they're going to be able to undercut independent restaurants on pricing. I, this is why I'm glad you brought this up, have created a solution that we're about to launch in the coming months in Jersey City and in Hoboken. We're launching a hyper-local marketplace called Gold Coast Community Delivery, offering a very similar service to any of the major apps. The one big caveat being the restaurants themselves that are our partners are going to be the benefactors in profit sharing at the end of the day. So we've put together a tech stack and last mile delivery fulfillment and plan on bringing on only independent restaurants and doing our own thing. Less fees for customers, less fees for restaurants, more transparency, more owning of your data, and that's really the only way I see locals being able to compete in the long run is to form their own co-op style delivery networks.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great thing that you're doing. And as we discussed before, I mean, the bottom line is this, clearly when you have companies such as Uber or Grubhub or, or any of the big names that you mention, the ultimate end game was always very obvious to me, which is to the extent that they can generate and create the food and deliver that that's going to and you're right these guys don't need to make money anyway but it's going to increase their market share and it probably would put them in the position to be profitable the yep. question always was whether you know would consumers be willing to to do that if they knew it but i think the most important aspect of this for independent restaurants to understand is that your brand is extremely important and valuable whether you've built that brand as a brick and mortar whether you've built it through people getting your delivery You and I discussed, Andrew, delivery of meals in New York City was going on big time when I was a kid, 35 years ago. So this is nothing new. You'd call up. What made it different is it's done through a very slick, easy-to-use app. They can give you points. They can do this. So in addition to what you're saying, and I understand it's not as as efficient, but I've been encouraging every independent restaurant— because it's much more affordable now, and there's, there's out-of-the-box solutions, to have your own mobile app. And I get it. It's hard to compete for real estate on people's phones. They're not going to do this for everything. But anything you can do to really make it a direct engagement between you and the customer you want to do. Because if you're relying on the third parties as the primary means of engagement with your customers, you're highly vulnerable. Some of these restaurants like the River Palm and Edgewater, for example, or Cheesecake Factory is another example, whatever you want to do. These are established brands that they're not going to be poached. They can use it if it's additional revenue, great. But if you're not in that position, you you, you don't want to be at their mercy. You don't want to be dependent on that for your business's survival because their interests are not necessarily in alignment with yours over the long term.
0: Not only are the interests not aligned in the long term, when you think about it, they're really not aligned in the short term because they have to make both the customer and the restaurant happy. Who are they going to choose when push comes to shove and there's a disagreement or a dispute over a check and who's eating the refund? You know, So there's already things that aren't aligned as far as it goes. And it's, it's, it's really only going to get much worse. So yes, my biggest pet peeve is when I see restaurants with DoorDash stickers and, and Grubhub stickers on their doors and in their profile pictures, it says, you know, order delivery that you're giving your customers away. And what's going to happen is the scariest line I heard this entire pandemic was I asked someone what they had for dinner last night. And they said they had DoorDash. I said, well, what restaurant did you order from? They had no idea. They just know that they ordered from DoorDash. Oh, we get DoorDash all the time. You know, DoorDash is not a restaurant. So like that tells you the detachment that's, hum- that's, that's happening between the customer and your brand. So You need to have a first party, whether it's an app, whether it's your own ordering website, you know, whatever it is, something that you're in control of and you direct your customers towards.
1: Yep. And I think that, you know, this is acutely the case in many other parts of America, you know, in New York City, which is a walking city and Jersey City is to an extent as well the brick and mortar presence is impactful but for these restaurants in other parts of america that don't have that traffic and they're really relying on delivery you just have to be very careful and invest the time and energy for that brand awareness you know and engagement 100% yeah. similar things have been attempted in my business as well you know anybody that can develop an app and leverage infrastructure that others have built and and skim off the profits it's a pretty neat business model, particularly if you don't have to be profitable. It's much easier to do because, again, kind of like what we were saying, you know, the cool thing, if you want to call it cool, or the innovation of the third-party apps is you now have all different kinds of restaurants available, whereas when I was a kid, it might have been a dozen that would deliver to my area. So, so that's there, cool. There is one more thing Please. I think
0: we should touch on in the same vein, yep. which is uh, the rise of virtual franchise brands. Um, that are operated out of independent restaurants. It's another buyer beware situation. I would advise restaurateurs to be very, be very careful about giving access to all of your data to you know uh, virtual franchise concepts that are selling you concepts, taking large cuts, but also forcing you to use one of their tablets, which gives them all of the insights into your current menu that they then use to develop more, more menus for other people in your area. So definitely beware of virtual restaurants that have catchy, SEO-able, searchable names. Right. Uh, typically the, the food is very poor in quality and uh, they are really, it's a cash grab. You know, it's the wild west right now for the virtual restaurant industry.
1: Right. And, and what I would say, and I've discussed this with with prior guests is, look, if you're sophisticated enough, like, for example, let's say I'm opening up a restaurant in Main Street, any town you want, and my concept is a hamburger place, but I notice that there's nowhere serving acai bowls and smoothies and things of that nature, and I know how to run my kitchen and leverage my fixed assets properly, then by all means, create a virtual menu that'll accommodate that gap in the marketplace. But own that. In other words, if if you're sophisticated enough to run a kitchen that's handling your brick and mortar needs, and you can then run a whole other concept out of it, I agree with you, Andrew. Why use some out-of-the-box brand? Yeah, you might make money. I haven't looked at the numbers. I know Mr. Beast, who's a big YouTuber and and many of these other people are, are doing these concepts, and I don't know the economics of it. But in my mind, what does make a lot of sense is if I know what I'm doing and I have a really great brick and mortar situation and I can leverage my fixed assets, to offer one or two or three additional virtual menus that fill a gap, that to me makes a lot of sense.
0: I completely agree. Couldn't agree more. Five five stars, double like. If you're going to put the time and effort to train your team on new items, it might as well be your brand and your items and you get all the profits because you're doing all the work. So to, to use someone else's brand because they claim that they have you know, they're doing all this marketing for you and there's all this brand equity. There's not. There's no brand equity for virtual restaurants right now. One day that might may change. You know, one day you might be in, in California and can get the same virtual concept delivered to you in New York that you love and it's the exact same and it tastes great, but that day is not here and people should really just focus on their own operation, creating their own virtual brand if they need to. And just stop giving their, their data away and stop cooking food for other people because they're not doing any work and they're making more money than you are.
1: And also, we're at a moment in time now, back to what we were discussing before, where people really appreciate the importance in their lives of the local restaurants. People desperately missed being able to go to their local restaurant or bar and, and have a meal, or have a drink. And so, people love diversity particularly if you're in a place like New York and New- and Jersey City you know variety is the spice of life as they say so if you have that really make the most of it and leverage every aspect of your brand and you know the great thing about it is it doesn't have to be what other people are doing and it doesn't have to be on such a broad scale you know it could just be the eight or nine blocks where your restaurant is, you can have tons of people there. And if you've got a loyal base there and then you build on that and have enough of a buzz going on where tourists might stop by every once in a while or people recommend it to friends, build off of that. You know, I had an interview with a guy that I did a few episodes ago, a, a restaurant consultant. He had some pretty good ideas. One of them was that every restaurant should have a QSR code in their window, which makes a lot of sense in New York City. And as people walk by, if they upload your QSR code and you give them some sort of incentive to come in. Use your storefront. Use everything you can to engage with people because that's what the ultimate benefit is to your brand, you know?
0: A hundred percent. And I do have a QR code on the front of my storefront, so I agree.
1: Yep, that's great. So, you know, just to sort of button this up because I I really did want to speak with you and we covered a lot of areas that I think are very important in the industry and, and what's going on right now. My own sense of things, God willing, is I think that we're in the early innings of a real sort of renaissance. But as occurred in 2008, what I think is going to be the most important theme, and this was important before, but I think it's more important than ever, is authenticity and humanity. You know, there's always been Different stages in the New York City restaurant space where you would have these grand, magnificent restaurants that it was all about the ambiance. Then other times you'd have really innovative sort of off-the-wall cuisine and that would be a trend. I think the trend now that's going to be here for a while is authenticity and humanity because that was the connection that people were deprived of that's what they want, and that's what hospitality at the end of the day is all about. I'm curious if you agree with that or if you think that there's another sort of trend or dynamic that's going to be driving this next sort of evolution as we go forward.
0: I agree with you, and I think this is maybe a generational thing. I'm in agreement with you. I think there's a generation now of of foodies that are more concerned with the scene and the impression of what they're doing than the actual of what they're doing. So while I agree with you that authenticity, it matters for lasting brands. I do think that there is a younger generation that is seeking out trend, fad type things, you know, just for, just for the Insta or just for TikTok. Um, Whether those are long-term successes, I'm not sure, but I know for, for me, definitely that rings true. That's what I want to be about you know, just relating to people on a person-to-person basis, but that doesn't work for every brand. So, you know, be authentic in your own brand. And if you're, uh, you like doing bedazzled milkshakes on Instagram and, you know, want to get a million views and go viral, you know, I think there's room for that too.
1: You make a good point. I think that, you know, I, I love social media as a commercial tool. I use it a lot as a way to engage with people as a way to just what led to this interview. I was following you and I liked what you had to say. And it's prompted this. So I think it's a great tool for business. What people use it for personally, and I'm going to quote David Goggins here, not all the time, but a lot of the time, is to project this perfect life that they want people to see. And that's totally, you know, that's human psychology. That's not something that we're here to talk about. But I think you make a great point because at the end of the day, people know What's real and what isn't. And you make a great point. And it's important. Instagram social media is so key. You want to have a few dishes on your menu that are really Instagram worthy, that are over the top, because people like to share and it's great advertising for you. But I was also saying, like, human to human connection is different than Zoom. And there's no better place to have that type of connection, I think, than a restaurant or a bar. And so if you leverage that with great food and a great vibe, again, You're right, everybody has to be true to their own concept. But I think that's something that we were deprived of and and could be big. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But listen, Andrew, and and before, you know, we wrap it up again, I really encourage everybody who hasn't listened to our initial interview to do it because we get into a lot of subjects about takeout, delivery, what the restaurant of the future will look like, and we go into greater detail. And I think these themes are extraordinarily important right now, and there's a lot of value in that. So please check out that, that first interview. Andrew, I really enjoyed this. If you're in Jersey City, give us the address again.
0: We're at 356 Barrick Street, the corner of uh, Columbus and Barrick.
1: And your your Instagram is GTK or?
0: We are at HelloGTK. Uh, you can also find us HelloGTK.com. And uh, we're on Twitter, rarely on Twitter, at Hello underscore GTK.
1: Even if you're listening outside of Jersey City, I really recommend that you follow Ghost Truck Kitchen on Instagram because Andrew often has some insights or some some information there that that transcends a region and is extremely helpful. So anyway, Andrew, I appreciate you making the time to do this, man. It's always great talking to you
0: absolutely. Pleasures on my end. Thanks, Stephen. All right.
1: Have a great day.
0: you too. Take care.
1: Bye. Thank you for listening to the Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.